A witch bottle. A small bottle filled with urine, hair, nail clippings, rosemary, and oils. Maybe earth, salt water, or wine. Hidden in the very structure of a building as counter-magical protection from witches' spells. Dried cats. Exactly what it sounds like. A mummified cat hidden in the wall of a house as it's being built to ward off evil spirits or provide good luck. Horse skulls, stripped of flesh and embedded in the foundation of a house. Maybe to repel ghosts. Even shoes, hidden in the walls of houses to serve as fertility charms, like the old woman who lived in a shoe, who had so many children, she didn't know what to do. Lots of things have been hidden in the walls of homes and other buildings to serve a wide range of purposes. Good luck, spirit repellent, fertility charm. Could you imagine doing some minor improvements to a wall in your house and finding any of these things? How would you feel? I mean, I'd be delighted, but I know I'm not like most people. This month on Death, Dying, and Other Things, two stories about things hidden. In the first, the voice memos of Arnold Walters, mystery author, a writer takes a retreat to an old hotel hoping to cure his writer's block. In the second, the pit, a man discovers something disturbing in his basement. Death and dying are the threshold between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Phantom Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. April 23rd, 10.15 p.m. I've arrived at Hobbs Mansion. It's just as my acquaintances described. An old mansion built by the Reverend Benjamin Hobbs with the money his congregation donated to his church. It was carefully converted to a lovely hotel 60 years ago when Reverend Hobbs met an unfortunate end by his own hand. Those heirs that had inherited his estate sold it off immediately and changed their names to avoid further backlash from the scandal. It's apparently haunted. Trauma and tragedy always leads to stories of hauntings, I find. And it's why the place was even recommended to me. Stay there a few nights, they said, and I'd have an endless supply of ideas. I really must stress how nice it is here. The rooms are large, the fabrics are heavy, 
The hallways are adorned with the most exquisite walnut molding, all carved by hand, I'm told. I know it sounds cliché. A writer retreating to a fine hotel to recharge the batteries, beat the writer's block, and find some inspiration. But I am, as my critics say, a walking cliché. It's late already. I'm going to turn in and get an early start. I hear the breakfast here is delicious, and I never turn down a good breakfast. There was something I forgot to do when I got here. Something I promised myself I would. Oh well, I'm sure I'll think of it later. April 24th, 6.45 p.m. Breakfast was good as promised. I ate so much of it I didn't need lunch. They had these little mini quiches with this bacon sprinkled on top. I might make the trip up here again just for those quiches. The rest of the day I spent wandering the hotel and the mansion grounds. There are a great deal fewer people here than I might have anticipated. I can't tell yet whether that's positive or negative on my stated goal of working through this writer's block and finding a little inspiration. I'm at dinner now. A half a chicken, rosemary potatoes, asparagus. They brought a large salad that I hardly touched and three kinds of bread. It is too much food. Too much food for one person, but they keep bringing more, and by God, I keep eating. April 24th, 9.30 p.m. I've just returned to my room after my dinner and several drinks and noticed something profoundly odd. Something I didn't notice last night when I arrived. Walking across the room from the door to the dresser where I've placed my clothes, I perceived a slight change in the sound my footfalls were making on the floor beneath my feet. The whole of the room's floor is covered by a rather large rug, and mostly my feet make a dead thumping sound on the floor, but in a specific area, right near the foot of my bed, my footsteps start to create a ghostly, reverberant sound for several feet. It's as if a rather sizable portion of the room's floor sits over a hollow cavern. The rug, of course, is held in place by the rather large and heavy wooden furniture that fills my room. So there's no way to investigate further. But it is strange. Very strange. April 25th, 5 p.m. I have succeeded in getting a great deal of writing done today. I found a small alcove in one of the hallways on the second floor that had everything I needed. A small desk with a very comfortable chair, a window overlooking the backyard and the small wooded area that the backyard butts up against, and a bookshelf stocked with books. That last part I found 
is very important to my process. I need to be among works of my craft in order to... I don't know how to describe it, besides draw from them, as silly as that sounds. The oddity in my room, I must confess, played a fairly large role in my renewed work ethic. I felt my mind wandering to it often throughout the day. And before I had even realized it, I had incorporated some elements of that funny quirk into my latest Detective Hennessy novel. Detective Hennessy and his assistant Amelia are investigating a heist. Some jewels have been stolen, or maybe some artworks, I'm not quite sure yet. But anyway, Hennessy and Amelia are investigating. They're at the home of the main suspect. Amelia, always the brains of the operation, is sure that they've got their man. They just need to find the stolen goods in his house. Hennessy, in his infinite bumbling, knocks over the cage of the suspect's pet parakeet, letting the pet bird loose. He chases the thing back and forth across the living room over a particular section of floor. Amelia, of course, notices the hollow sound the detective's footsteps make over that section of floor. They pry up the floorboards and find the stolen goods, solving the case. Now I just need to figure out what was stolen in the first place. Ugh. 2 a.m. on April 26th? I just awoke from a very alarming dream. At least I think it was a dream. Every indication is that it was a dream, but it was very real. I mean, when I'm dreaming, when I'm in the process of dreaming, when I'm in the dream world, it's usually quite difficult to tell the difference between dreams and reality. It all seems very real when you're in it, doesn't it? But once you're out of it in the waking hours, it's usually so easy to identify dreams as dreams. Everything's so wrong from the outside looking in that it's an easy task. Dreams exist in a world covered by haze that is only visible once the dreamer is awake. There is no such haze over my memory of this dream. In the dream, I arrived back in my room to find a lump under the rug in the location of the auditory anomaly, and what's more, the lump was moving. Some small being was trapped under the rug, struggling to free itself. Concerned, I fetched a pocket knife from my bag, which is strange, because I don't carry a pocket knife, and began cutting the small creature from its current prison, carefully carving the carpet around what I assumed would be a small animal, probably a small rodent. I freed the being in short order. But what I found there, under the rug, wasn't an animal at all, but a small statue, the length of my forearm. It must have been marble, I remember thinking when I lifted the thing up because of how heavy it was. 
I tried to get a good look at the thing, turning it over in my hands, trying to decipher what the statue was depicting. But each time I turned it in my hands, the details of the figure seemed to retreat around to the backside of the statue. And then I heard the noises behind me, a voice I couldn't understand, hushed but urgent. I turned quickly to face the source of the voice, to find a man, tall and slender with messy black hair and small framed glasses staring wide-eyed at me, then the statue, then back to me. He was urging me to do something with the statue. I can't decipher what, but that's when I woke up. April 26th, 7 p.m. Writing went much worse today. God. Probably because of the bad sleep. Or just the nightmares in general. I'm seated for dinner at the moment. Though I'm not all that hungry. Maybe I'll just have a bottle of wine instead. Yeah. Maybe just a bottle of wine. Ugh. Uh, April 26th, 8.30 p.m. I'm walking back to my room right now, and something caught my eye in the hallway. On a small table, maybe three, four doors down away from the room I'm staying, is a statue about the size of my forearm. That is very similar to the one that was in my dream last night. It's not made of marble like I thought it was. Something much lighter. Maybe plaster. It's of a perched eagle, which surprises me. I expected something much more sinister. <laughs> oh, but what's this? On the underside of it. A key. Small. Metal. A key. <laughs> April 26th, 11 p.m. I laid down to sleep about an hour ago and have since been overcome with a feeling of dread. The comforting sounds of other people in the room surrounded mine have receded into the night. And now, laying in this unfamiliar room, the dark silence is oppressing me. It's as if a thick blanket of fog is pressing down on me. Filling my lungs with fat. Tightening around my heart as it struggles to beat. I would love to hear even a television turned just a bit too loud next door. Even that would soothe my nerves at this point. I'm thirsty. I don't want to get out of bed. It's like I'm a child again. And the bed will keep me safe from the things lurking in the shadows. Perhaps I'll call down for some more milk. That always calms my nerves. It's 12.30 a.m., which means it's April 27th. It's been an hour since I called down to the attendant to bring some more milk, and now they're not answering the phone. 
I'm too scared to even rise from the bed and turn on the light. I cannot explain why. Talking into this recorder is helping somewhat to distract me. But perhaps I need to take a different tack. Perhaps I'll recall a story. When I was just starting out in my career, I was in correspondence with someone who gave the impression that they worked for a large publisher, though we never met in person. We exchanged emails on a weekly basis that were always the same. This person would ask to see some samples of what I was working on, the publishing house was looking for more mysteries to publish, and so I would send the samples along. This went on for months. They would ask for samples, and I would send them, and then they would write back that no, the samples weren't quite what they were looking for. After several months, I stopped receiving replies to my emails, and several months after that, Another contact that I had acquired in publishing sent me a manuscript, along with a note, saying that a lot of it sounded familiar. Yes, this mystery person had taken all the half-developed pieces and pages that I had sent them and stitched them together, and was now trying to pass off my writing as their own. It didn't work, but it left an indelible mark on me that no one was to be trusted. Specifically, I guess you could say... What the fuck? Someone just walked by the foot of my bed. Someone just walked by the foot of my bed. April 27th, 8 a.m. Another night of completely awful sleep. Maybe it's the mattress. That must be it. The mattress is lumpy and it's keeping me up. I'll have the attendant figure out a solution today while I'm writing. April 27th, 6.30 p.m. I just sat down to dinner, but I'm not very hungry. The staff has informed me that my bed isn't lumpy, and even if it were, there would be nothing they could do because they don't exactly keep spare beds lying around. Maybe I'll have some soup. The soup sounds good. Tomato bisque. Maybe I'll ask for a new room. No, they probably don't have any available. Maybe I'll cut the trip short. April 27th, 8.15 p.m. I think I've decided what the thieves that Detective Hennessy and Amelia are investigating will steal. Art from the museum. A statue, maybe. One <sighs> forty-five a.m. April 28th, I guess. I must admit, I'm quite alarmed at the moment. My pulse is raised. My cheeks are burning and flushed. They call it the flight or fight response, if I'm remembering correctly from school. 
I woke up out of a dead sleep, extremely parched, and rectified the situation with a glass of water I kept on the bedside table for just such an occasion since the other night when I also woke up parched but too scared to get out of bed. Once I had guzzled the water and laid back down on the pillow, I began to hear uh, rummaging down at the foot of my bed, like someone was searching through boxes or arranging wooden blocks. Maybe I thought a rat had made its way into my room and was gnawing on a bedpost. So I crawled to the end of the bed to have a look. As I peeked my head over the edge of the bed, down to the floor, now that I think of it, down to where I'm certain the hollow crevice is hiding under the rug, I saw the back of someone's head protruding from underneath the bed. This person's arms were extended out, grasping at the floor, clawing at the same spot. I noticed the irregularities. I gasped, literally and audibly, and when I did, the man stopped his groping, and I went rigid, unable to tear myself from the spot, unable to look away. The man turned his head, fixed his eyes on mine, and even... When his neck reached the normal limits of flexibility, his head kept turning until his head sat completely backwards on his body. Until his eyes were wide and staring through mine and into my soul. Until the face of the man from my dreams was fully visible right there on the floor of my room. He whispered something incomprehensible and I finally managed to wrench myself from the spot and back up to the pillows where I am now, gathered into a guarded fortress against whoever that man is. I wonder if he's still there. I'm too anxious to check. April 28th, 7 a.m. I must have fallen back asleep. I woke up curled into a ball at the head of my bed. Everything hurts now. An old man like me can't sleep like that without my whole body ending up sore. Going to give writing here one more go today. If I don't get anything written today, I'm going to leave tomorrow. April 28th, 8 p.m. Just now, I return to my room to find it ransacked. My belongings have been strewn every which way. Clothes are scattered all over the floor. Drawers are thrown open. Nothing was taken, as far as I can tell, except for the pages of the latest Detective Hennessy that I've written since I've got here. To be honest, I would have preferred that they just take my valuables. God damn it. April 28th, 9.30 p.m., I tried talking to the attendant at the front desk, and when she wasn't any help, I demanded to talk to a manager. They did not take my concern seriously, accusing me of making it all up. From the experiences at night, to the problem with the floor, to the break-in just now. Said I'm the one who's been causing trouble said I've been nothing but trouble since I got here, causing scenes at dinner, making unreasonable demands. 
Of course, I don't know what he's talking about anyway. Well, we'll see who's making it up. <sighs> okay. April 28th, 10 p.m. I've moved some of the furniture around the room so that I can peel the rug back off the floor. Most of this furniture is heavy as hell. I had to drag most of it. Left large scratches in the wood floors that I'll be damned if I'm going to pay for. Now listen to this. You hear the difference there? I knew something was different. Let me see. Let me see. Hinges. There's hinges! Ha! I knew it. Let me see. No handle, though. I've got a butter knife from dinner. Let me see. All right, fits in there, all right. All right, all right, what is this then? A parcel, a package. A package, about two feet by one foot. Wrapped in burlap, let me see. Ugh. Heavy. Inside the burlap is a wooden box. Walnut, maybe. It's nice. Looks like brass hinges and a brass latch. The latch is locked by a small padlock. Looks like iron. Wait, the key! The key I found a few days ago. Let's see if it fits. Yes, incredible. The box is lined with felt on the inside. There's a pouch, three sheets of paper, some copper wire, heavily rusted now. A thin white knife. Ceramic? Maybe bone? Wrapped with oiled leather around the grip. The pouch has some sort of powder in it. Coarse. Gray. Not consistent. Lots of big chunks in it. Ugh. It smells burned. Earthy. That got picked up. That's the same voice I heard in my dream. The sheets of paper are old, decades at least. They're very yellowed. The handwriting on them is illegible. It's either nonsense or in a language I don't know and have never seen before. It's him. Who are you? No, put that down. As always, thank you for listening to the show. Up next, a man finds something disturbing in his basement.
I live at 321 Owens Avenue. Built 1963 out of bricks reclaimed from a 19th century schoolhouse. 1,200 square feet, a single floor, three bedrooms, two bathrooms, a basement. When I bought it, nobody told me about the pit. That's not really fair, I guess. I think it would be more accurate to say that they didn't know about the pit. I didn't even know about it until I discovered it by accident two years after I had bought it. I was putting some boxes in the basement for storage, mostly just papers, old books, stuff I wasn't going to miss having at my fingertips, stuff I probably wasn't going to miss at all, but I had a habit of hanging on to everything, just in case. I stacked the last of the boxes up in the corner and bumped a tall metal bookshelf that held most of my tools, hammers, and stuff like that. The shelf fell forward, smashing into the concrete. I cringed when it hit. It reminded me of all the times I fell over backwards playing in the basement as a kid, all the times my head would whip back as my spine hit the floor, all the times the base of my skull would whack into the cold gray concrete. The crack would bounce around my skull, and it would take a second for the pain to register. Then it felt like my brains were squeezing out of my ears. I remember sitting on the basement floor and sobbing more times than I care to admit. I wonder how many concussions I never had diagnosed. Probably a lot of them. I hoisted the heavy metal bookcase and put all the tools back up on it, and then noticed in the basement floor where the shelf had impacted a substantial crack in the concrete. I stepped over to the crack and now, knowing what I know, did the stupidest thing you could possibly imagine. I stomped on the floor. It sounded hollow beneath my feet. I heard an echo. I stomped again to be sure, and sure enough, the second stomp echoed around as well. I grabbed a sledgehammer from the shelving I had just pieced back together, and two inches of concrete and several lengths of rebar later, I had uncovered a 4 by 4 by 12 foot cylindrical pit beneath my house. That alone would be reason enough to be alarmed, but, to add to my discomfort, I also felt a draft coming through. It caressed my face and pushed my hair, stale, cold air that had been trapped for God knows how long. I grabbed a flashlight and pointed it down into the pit, examining the sides. All the surfaces were smooth concrete. There was nowhere for a draft to be coming from. Toward the bottom, the concrete had been stained some dark color. The sides, though smooth for the most part, showed some indication of damage. The air, breezing up from the bottom, smelled like dirt and sawdust. I called my real estate agent, demanding to know why this was never disclosed. She called the seller's real estate agent, and they insisted they had no idea. I told my real estate agent I was going to sue. After all, it had only been two years. She talked me down. It's not like it was a mold problem. It's not like they hid major structural damage. It was just a pit. And they were probably telling the truth. 
they probably didn't know about it. So I had a pit in my basement. A mystery pit that no one knew about and no one could explain. I found myself standing over it a few times that night, wandering down with a beer in my hand, peering down to the depths, imagining who put it there, wondering what it could have been used for. Storage, most likely. It was probably like a cellar, something for wine, something for aging wine. I know nothing about wine, can you tell? Of course, I couldn't help thinking about more sinister possible uses. Imprisoning folks, using the pit as a dungeon, swaying on the edge, under the effects of around seven beers, I still felt that damn draft. A gentle breeze pushing itself out of that awful hole. I spit and waited for it to hit the bottom of the well. I listened hard, but never heard that glob of spit hit the bottom. Instead, voices, I don't know how many, drifted up to my ears carried by the gentle breeze. I trembled and slept with the light on that night. I woke up on the cold concrete next to the pit. It's almost cliche, isn't it? Like the big hole in my basement was exerting some kind of influence on me. I definitely laid down on my bed. I wasn't that drunk. I can handle seven beers. But my head was pounding, evidence of the irresponsible night before, so it's possible I passed out down there. I probably passed out, that's the simplest explanation. I couldn't tell if it was morning yet. There were no windows down there, and somehow either the light had been turned off or the light bulb had died. I stood up and caught my balance, my muscles weak from the hangover. I took a few steps toward the stairs, away from the pit, and something passed in front of me. A person or the shadow of a person. Something large and person-shaped, at least. I took a sharp breath in, squinted into the darkness. My mind screamed to run for the light switch. Whatever it was shoved me, square in my chest, pushing me backwards towards the pit. I listened to my mind, ran towards the light switch, and flipped it on, spinning to face whatever had assaulted me. But there was nothing down there. Just me. Me in the pit. When it opened, I went to the building inspector's office to look at the original blueprints for my house. The old bell attached to the door rang when I pushed it open, demanding the attention of the poor lady behind the counter, who I estimated was only days away from her pension. She smiled when I recited my address, 321 Owens Avenue and she led me into the back. We walked for miles back there, past cabinet after cabinet, past drawers of paper older than me. She walked me to one in particular and patted a middle drawer. It'll be in here, she said, and left me to my work. I yanked the drawer open. The house would be cured, I wagered, as soon as I knew what that damn pit was. Decades of paper and dust hit my nose, 
it reminded me of the attic in my childhood home. I actually had to stop to catch my breath. This was suddenly exciting. A real mystery. Albright Street, Orange Avenue, Osprey Lane. 321 Owens Avenue. Built 1963 out of bricks reclaimed from a 19th century schoolhouse. 1,200 square feet. A single floor. Three bedrooms, two bathrooms, a basement, and no pit. The lady insisted there were no blueprints in the back, but I bet she was lying. When I got home and wandered back down to the cold basement, I felt lonelier than I had in a while. The pit was just a pit, wasn't it? And the draft and the voices were just my overactive imagination. And nobody had any answers anyway. Except maybe the internet. 321 Owens Avenue just brought up directions to my house. 321 Owens Avenue blueprints. A couple of clicks later, and I was looking at the same blueprints I had just seen at the building inspector's office. Could have saved myself a trip. 321 Owens Avenue pit. That's the one that worked. What I found was article after article from 1974. The original owner of the house was a guy by the name of Jay Britton. None of the articles I could find listed his full name, just Jay Britton. I couldn't find a picture of him either, just some faceless, unidentifiable boogeyman. The pit in my basement? That's where they found the bodies, ten of them in varying states of decay, all killed by Jay Britton. Most of the bodies were unidentifiable, and the ones that were had no one to claim the bodies. He chose his victims carefully. Jay Britton was shot in his home, in my home, by police, while shouting, I ain't sorry, waving a meat cleaver above his head. His ten victims buried in the local cemetery in unmarked graves. My curiosity satisfied, I closed my laptop, and without really thinking, I got into my car. It was 20 minutes from my house to the cemetery. I asked the groundskeeper where the 10 victims of Jay Britton were buried. He didn't know. The sun was setting, filling the sky with orange light. I looked out over the rows and rows of gravestones as I walked through them, and found a patch of unmarked land. The grass had grown long here, like it had been neglected for a long while. I said a little prayer, and shivered from the cold breeze that had started blowing from the east. When I got home, I put a call into a concrete pouring company. I offered them triple their usual rates. They filled in the pit the next day. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The stories, both the voice memos of Arnold Walter's mystery author and The Pit, were written by me, too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Concrete and to Haunted Hotels. 
Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Phantom Podcast Network. Be sure to check out all the other great shows. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. Thank you.